1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. K. Stephen Prince, an associate professor of history at the University of South Florida, where he has worked since 2010. He has written extensively on the history of the U.S. South in the post-Civil War era, including his 2014 book titled Stories of the South, Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. He's here to speak with me today about his most recent book, The Ballad of Robert Charles, Searching for the New Orleans Riot of 1900, published by UNC Press in 2021. This book explores one of the most violent episodes in one of the most violent eras in U.S. history. Well, I don't want to give away too much. In his exploration of the New Orleans Riot of 1900, he not only delves into the narrative of the riot, but also takes readers on an intellectual journey through the practice of history, writing, and preservation. He reveals evidence of international... Sorry. He reveals evidence of intentional erasures, uh, both in the ways the riot and its aftermath were chronicled and in the ways stories were silenced or purposefully obscured. The book also brings to the fore long-hidden facts from the narratives passed down by white and black New Orleanians over more than a century. In the end, through the story of Robert Charles and Prince's exploration into how historical events are preserved or not preserved over time, the book challenges us to, and I'm going to quote here, ask ourselves what we believe and why we believe it. And in the age of fake news and unprecedented amounts of mis- and disinformation, engaging with this question could not be timelier. Dr. Prince, welcome to the podcast. Brandon, thank you so much for having me. Now, before we delve in, I do just just want to confess to everybody, I'm not a completely unbiased interviewer here. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Steve in New Orleans when he was just starting the research process for this book, uh, and then we had a couple of conversations at the Southern Historical Association's annual meeting a few years back about how the writing process was going and the like, uh, and I'm super excited to see, see all of this work that I've, I've low-key uh, been keeping track of over the last couple of years come to fruition, and this really— Really, really fantastic book. So, um, first and foremost, congratulations uh, on the book, and congratulations on bringing everything together in a way that is really engaging and accessible to to a wide uh, array of audience.
1: Well, thank you so much. I mean, it, it feels like it's been a uh, a long time coming, but um, it's it's nice to finally you know see it on the uh, on the bookshelf. So.
0: All right. So, in case some of our listeners are unaware of the story of the New Orleans Riot of 1900, would you just give us a quick overview uh, uh, of the events of July 1900 that you chronicle in this book?
1: Of course. So, um, 1900 uh, is is sort of in the midst of of the construction of the Jim Crow regime uh, in in the South, and if you wanted to pick, you know, a a, a moment where where you know, the most violent moments uh, in, in Southern history in terms of, you know, the the post-Civil War South, you could do worse than July of 1900. It's um, the end of a decade that sees peaks in lynching, uh, sees the disfranchisement of African Americans across the South, um, and also sees the beginning of of the segregation of, of public space. Um, so that's the context. Um, uh, on July 23rd, 1900, uh, a black man named Robert Charles Uh, was sitting on a stoop with a young friend of his named Leonard Pierce um, in an uptown section of New Orleans. Uh, Robert Charles was about 34 years old. Uh, He had been born in Mississippi and had moved to New Orleans around 1894 and had worked sort of a variety of of odd jobs around the city. Um, So Charles uh, and and Pierce were were sitting there. um, When three white police officers approached them, words were exchanged. Uh, Charles tried to stand One of the officers struck him with his baton. Um, Charles sort of pulled away, both he and the officer pulled their weapons, pulled their guns and exchanged fire. Um, Both Charles and the officer were wounded uh, in that initial exchange and Robert Charles uh, escaped into the night. Um, A couple hours later, uh, the police were able to track him to his rented room nearby on 4th Street in New Orleans. They arrived at at this location, uh, this sort of block of of very small, cheap apartments, Um, and as they approached his door, Charles opened the door and opened fire with a Winchester rifle. Um, He killed two police officers uh, before sort of miraculously escaping once again into the night. So Charles at this point has wounded one police officer um, and killed two and has now escaped into the night. So the next day, uh, the police launch an extensive manhunt. Um, White residents of the city begin to gather uh, in the the vicinity of of the 4th Street boarding house where Charles had killed the two officers. Um, There's a bit of of white-on-black violence that first day, uh, but sort of wide-scale violence does not break out until the following day, Wednesday, July 25th, with Charles still in hiding. Um, White residents of, of the city begin to target black residents of the city in the street. Um, So around 8 p.m. that night, a a mob gathers in Lee Circle. Um, They move sort of uptown to to the area where where Charles had last been seen, but then they sort of, over the next several hours, they basically just rampage throughout the city. They stop at the uh, the parish prison. They go into Storyville, New Orleans' red light district, um, brutally beating African-Americans wherever they find them in the streets. Uh, They ended up killing three African-Americans on that first night of, of rioting. Um, Of course, they were ostensibly looking for Robert Charles, but, but did not locate him. And, and in effect, you know, any African-Americans that were unfortunate enough to, to stumble across the path of the white mobs ended up becoming uh, victims of, of this, this, this brutal white crowd that, that passed through the city. Um, The next day, the mayor came back into town. Mayor, Paul Capteville comes back into the city and uh, sort of deputizes an emergency civilian police force in the hopes of suppressing the rioters. Um, the police force was fairly effective on that day in, in keeping there. There are a few more incidents of violence, including the murder of a woman named Hannah Mabry in her own home. Um, but the, the rioting is, is largely sort of calmed on on that that fourth day. So we're up to Thursday now. These events started on a Monday. Um, still. Robert Charles is is in hiding. Uh, he, hasn't been, he hasn't been located. The police have no idea where he is, uh, but they do finally locate him on the Friday of the week. So again, these events start on Monday. On Friday, Robert Charles is located. Um, he's hiding in a, uh, the house of some acquaintances, some friends on uh, Saratoga Street, um, about a mile from uh, the 4th Street boarding house where he had killed the officers uh, several days earlier. Um, several police officers are sent to the Saratoga Street house uh, after an anonymous tip. Um, They explore an outbuilding in the backyard where, unbeknownst to them, Charles uh, was in hiding. Um, Charles jumps from a closet below the stairs, armed with the Winchester rifle, and he shoots and kills these two officers. Uh, So he's now killed four police officers uh, before going up to the second floor of, of this building. Um, the sound of the gunshots sort of draws a crowd and word quickly spreads. Uh, a white crowd gathers, surrounds this, this sort of small outbuilding in the backyard where Charles is up on the second floor. Um, so we have this sort of climactic shootout that lasts for uh, a couple hours. Contemporary sources said the crowd may have numbered, you know, I read 10,000. I don't believe that, but call it a thousand. It's still an awful lot of people, um, surrounding this building. They have guns. They're shooting at Robert Charles. He is shooting from the second floor back at the crowd. Um, Charles ends up killing three more white people in the crowd during this, this final shootout, uh, before finally, um, the, the, the police set his, the building on fire. Charles is forced to flee from the burning building and from the smoke, Um, He sort of bursts from from the door into the backyard uh, and into the front building at 1208 Saratoga Street, where he is finally shot and killed. Um, His body is then dragged into the streets. Uh, It is it is beat. It is it is shot something like 30 times um, uh, before being finally dragged away from uh, from the crowd and, and brought to to the morgue. Um, that basically ends, ends the week of, of violence. The coda of all this is, is that the uh, members of the white crowd weren't quite satisfied. Um, and later that night, they go to the Tommy Lafon school, which is nearby. Uh, this was the, the primary, uh, school for, for African-Americans, um, high school effectively for African-Americans in the city of New Orleans. Uh, they burn it to the grounds, um, in one last, you know, fit of, of racial anger, racial animosity. They burned the school. Um, all in all, uh, the white mobs are estimated, um, according to contemporary sources, the white mobs killed, uh, six African-Americans, seven, if we include Robert Charles, uh, they, they injured dozens more than that. There is any number of reasons to suspect that the actual total of deaths was far higher, uh, than, than just that. Um, and Robert Charles ended up killing uh, seven white people, including four members of, of the New Orleans Police Department during during this week of violence.
0: Yeah, it really is one of the most compelling stories that I've ever come across in the Jim Crow era. Um, just just it's got all of these really fascinating threads of like race relations, violence, vengeance. Uh, heroics, right, of Robert Charles kind of doing the impossible, which is standing up to white New Orleanians, the white police force for days and days and days. But, you know, as historians, we can't just pick the most interesting story to tell. We also have to have a larger contribution that we're making to the field. And, And in fact, you're not the first historian, as you know, to look at the story of Robert Charles and the riot of 1900 in New Orleans. So I'd like to just Give you the opportunity to explain your mindset, right? You're like sitting in your office, you're trying to figure out where you're headed next after your first book is published. What made you think that that we needed a fresh look um, at, at the narrative of Robert Charles and and the events in New Orleans in July of 1900?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I actually, you know, I knew the story. Um, I think, you know, most people who, who work in the Jim Crow era have read, you know, it's in... Um, Leon Litwack's uh, big book on the Jim Crow era. It's in Joel Williamson's uh, Crucible of Race. You know, several of the other sort of uh, really big books on the rise of Jim Crow, you know, mention it. So I was familiar with Robert Charles' story. Um, and actually, uh, Ida B. Wells, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, the famous anti-lynching activist, has a pamphlet that she wrote about about the Robert Charles affair uh, called Mob Rule in New Orleans that she published in um, late 1900. Um, And actually the way I came to the book was through teaching that pamphlet actually. So I was, I was teaching Ida B. Wells's, there's a little, um, the Bedford series in history and culture, uh, this sort of series of of primary source readers that a lot of us use for teaching has an Ida B. Wells book, which I taught to, to one of my new South courses one year. Um, And I was reading it before class and I got to the, to the Robert Charles pamphlet and I'm like, man, the story is just fascinating. I'd love to read more about, about Robert Charles. And so I went to I went to Google, uh, you know, and, you know, I I I was really assuming that somebody had written a new book on Robert Charles within the last, you know, five or 10 years. Um, this is 2013, 14 that I was I was, you know, doing this. I just assumed somebody had written a new book on it recently that I wanted to read because it was such a cool event. And then I found um, that nobody had actually written a scholarly work on it since 1976. Yeah, decades, Um, decades, decades, you know, almost 40 years. And, you know, I looked around and I, you know, realized that that was the 1976 book was, in fact, the last full length, you know, scholarly monograph on this subject. And, you know, I was kind of like, all right, if you're going to pull my leg about it, you know, if you're going to if you're going to make me write this book, if you're going to make me go to New Orleans and spend a bunch of time there to do research, you know, (laughs) sounds horrible, right? I I accept fine. Um, Right, right. You know, so that's that's kind of how it happens. Um, and I, I sort of had the, the fortune actually of, of the book that was written in 1976, uh, was by a guy named, uh, William Ivy Hare. Uh, the book is called carnival of fury, uh, Robert Charles and the new Orleans race, Riot of 1900 or something like that. But it's William mm-hmm. Ivy Hare, carnival of fury, um, LSU re-released a, a second edition of it in uh, the early two thousands that Fitz Brundage did an introduction to. So it's still, it's still available. Um, and I, I, I had the fortune of of having that book as the sort of primary book that I was writing against, I suppose. Um, and I say fortune because that book is incredibly good. Yeah. Um you know, it 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 stands the test of time. Uh, it is incredibly well done. Um, it it does a remarkable job of sort of uncovering the story of Robert Charles and sort of piecing together a biography of of Charles, which as I'm sure we'll discuss is, is not an easy thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. but William I, the hair did a, did a fantastic job. So that was sort of a luxury because I felt, I didn't feel compelled to reinvent the wheel and to do what hair had already done so well. So, I mean, the, the biggest example of that is hair spends almost half of his book in Mississippi with Robert Mm -hmm. Charles. He doesn't really Mm -hmm. get to new Orleans until about halfway through. And that let me say, you know, okay this can be a book about Robert Charles's New Orleans you know I can I can focus on it I can Mississippi obviously plays a role in in my book as well but it but it's very much about you know Charles's time in New Orleans and and the, the turn of the century city that, that Charles lived in and um, for our
0: listeners Mississippi is where Robert Charles was from Yes, um, yes which exactly. is why uh, the first book spent so much time on it
1: he grew up in in Copaya County Mississippi uh, lived in Vicksburg for a little while um, and then moved to New Orleans when he was about... 30 late twenties or about 30 years old. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, you know, Hare's book is fantastic and I am, I am proud to, to have my book stands next to his. Um, but I did feel that there were things that I could do that were different. Um, one of them is, is the whole sort of aftermath and, and memory angle, which is something that Hare just doesn't really get into at all. His book really mm-hmm. ends with Robert Charles's death, uh, in late July, 1900, there's, a, you know, a few pages about about some of the trials that took place afterwards. But um, my book, on the other hand, has basically two full chapters that occur after Charles's death. And it is it really as much about the sort of um, the myth and memory of this event and the way to, that it was remembered and forgotten and reworked and reimagined in, you know, the immediate aftermath and then the longer term um, aftermath of, of the event. So, you know... I felt free to, to, there was more, more to say, I thought, yeah. than what hair did. And, you know, it was, it, it was really a nice sweet spot for me of, of having a, a really solid book that I, I could honestly say, I respect this book and this book stands, but also feeling like there were other things that, that could be done uh, as well. Um, I should also point out that there's another book on uh, the Robert Charles event that came out last year as well. Um, a guy named Andrew Baker wrote a book that is called uh, to poison a nation. Um, So check out that one as well. And, you know, I had some contact with Baker and we were sort of, you know, back and forth about it. Um, But we decided not to read each other's work ahead of time. So neither of us had any idea what the other one was going to say. And so... You know that, that that was a really fascinating thing
0: too my book. Yeah, out, as you're maybe. rushing to get it to your publisher before the other one,
1: uh, we were. Yeah, look, it was not it was not a race A friendly but a, competition. It was a friendly competition, exactly. And you know, but mine came out a couple months before his. Not that it was a race, um, <laughs> but then to actually read his was was totally fascinating. You know, a couple months a couple months later, and to actually see somebody else who had been doing a lot of the same work and and you know where he ended up with the story um, was was a really interesting thing to do from my perspective.
0: Well, not to talk about someone else's book while we're supposed to be here talking about your book, but what did you think some of the major differences were between what you came up with and and what he published? I have not read his book.
1: Uh, so this it, it, is, it's a great book. Um, you know, I'm honored to have mine stand next to his as well. Um, he, and I think he would, he would sort of say that this was his intention. Uh, I think wrote a, a sort of a, a sort of closer to the ground narrative of, of the events um, my book ends up asking, as you, as you said in the opening, kind of a lot of questions about um, for better or for worse, it asks a lot of questions about, about the writing of history and forgetting and how do we know what we know and other sorts of questions that um, I think Baker's book sort of, you know, it, it's a, it's a trade press book and it, it, it sort of, it's more comfortable just telling the story, um, you know, from, from beginning to end. He does, he does some really interesting stuff at the end um, tying in Mark Essex, who was the New Orleans sniper of 1973, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a black nationalist who, who killed several people from the Howard Johnson's in downtown New Orleans uh, in, in the early seventies. And one of the really cool things that the Baker does at the end of his book is sort of, you know, reading Charles and Essex against one another in, in really mm-hmm. interesting ways. Um, Essex shows up briefly in mine, but but not to quite the extent that he does in, in Baker's book.
0: So we don't get any second book about Robert Charles for half a century, and then all of a sudden in the 2010s, we have two come out relatively uh, close to each other. What do you think it is about this moment that has people looking back at Robert Charles?
1: You know, I, the, I can honestly say that... It, that Okay, so, I mean, the contemporary resonances are quite apparent, I think, to pretty much anybody uh, to whom I tell the story or or anybody who has heard me give a talk or or whatever. But, I mean, Um, to be
0: fair, you started this project, right, like 10, 12 years ago um, when perhaps the the conversations around race and policing weren't as robust as they have been over the last two or three years. So, I mean, like, what do you think it is about this this moment that that maybe – preceded you know george floyd uh that 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 is drawing attention back to robert charles
1: yeah i mean it definitely it preceded uh george floyd but you know i mean um the violence in in ferguson missouri was you know it wasn't quite 10 or 12 years i mean i started it in uh 2014 or 15 so you know that was okay you know that was sort of in the ether at that moment um the first wave, if you will, of, of sort of, uh, discussion of, of police violence, the first wave in the, the 2000 teens of discussion of police violence against, um, African Americans. Um, so that was definitely, that was in the ether, uh, at that moment as well. Um, you know, I can't say that I, I, I was reading the newspaper and decided to re-examine the Robert Charles story, but you know, I was certainly aware of of the significance of the story of this black man who did, you know, uh, stand up against against police violence in, in an earlier time period. You know, so I, I was very much aware of of the, the relevance and the and the resonance. And um, one of the archivists with whom I worked pretty closely in in New Orleans said that the book was uh, devastatingly relevant. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, he said it better than I could. So, you know, I've been I've been quoting him ever since just because I, I, I feel like that's 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 kind of a true statement. So, you know, I think I think it's. It's not unrelated to the fact of, um, you know, to to Michael Brown and and Ferguson and Eric Garner and George Floyd and and um, those events that, that, that a couple of us, I think, decided to take it up and. You know, I I encourage people to read the book with with more contemporary events in mind, because I think it's, you know, though it is still clearly a historical work, I'd like to think that it does invite people to make those those connections as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in the book, you do this really interesting thing. When I first cracked it open, uh, and I'm assuming anybody who reads it has a similar reaction. Um, You're done talking about the narrative of the riot by page 27. Before you even get into chapter one, the riot is over. Um, Robert Charles has been killed. Uh, And you explain a little bit uh, in the introduction why you decided to make that decision. But just what made you feel like that was the good move? Go ahead and just get the entire story of the of of the riot out of the way by 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 page twenty-seven.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I figure nobody's gonna read more than twenty-seven pages anyway. <laughs> it's so just let's over just at that point. let's just front load everything and you yeah. know hope we can hope we can people will get through that. Just put it in the acknowledgments and it'll be <laughs> exactly, fine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um so there was a method to the madness. Uh <laughs> and I mean I really did set out to write what I thought was going to be a sort of concise narrative history of of this event um that was my goal i i thought that you know the event spoke for itself i thought that you know i would allow the violence to sort of tell its own story the characters to sort of speak in their own name and i would kind of just stay out of the way and and write a a a, a narrative of this remarkable event of jim crow era racial violence um so that was the goal when i went to new orleans uh to do research on this project for the first time in 2014 um I relatively quickly ran into some source issues, you know, um, and some of this is just stuff that all historians deal with to one degree or another. and, you know, frustrations, but but, but what are you going to do? So there were four daily newspapers in New Orleans in 1900. William Ivy Hare in 1976, quoted from all four of them, "I could not, for the life of me, find the daily item." did not exist at any of the archives in the city. Um, asked around, asked all the archivists, you know, all sorts of searching, couldn't find it. I finally figured out, you know, after several months of, of being there that I think the only copies probably got lost in Katrina flooding is, is my guess. Um, but you know, okay, that's a frustration. One of the four daily newspapers doesn't exist. Um, the, uh, the, the police, you may have used this, uh, these, these sources in your own work, the, uh, the homicide reports, uh, the, the New Orleans police department created extraordinarily detailed homicide reports, which are a fantastic source, except they don't exist for 1900. They exist for 1899 and for 1901, but not for, for 1900. Um, And, you know, the list goes on and on. So just this is this is annoying. But, uh, you know, all historians have to deal with with sort of source based issues in in this way. But as I as I worked more and more in the sources, and as I thought about what was at stake in this project, a a sort of this nagging doubt kind of got louder and louder and became um, more and more significant. And this was the fact that Robert Charles is never allowed to speak in he is, he is almost entirely absent in the historical record. Um, He were it not for this moment of, of extraordinary racial violence, uh, the sort of riot that ended up bearing his name, we probably would know, would know nothing about him. He's a sort of nameless, faceless African-American laborer um, of, of the sort that, you know, there were there were thousands in in back of town, uptown New Orleans, uh, just like Robert Charles in this period. Thousands of names that that you know we don't really know, other than a, a line in the census here and there. Um, but Charles, in spite of the fact that he is the sort of central character in this story, and in spite of the fact that he is he is the the protagonist of of these events, he is completely absent in the historical record. He is the character spoken about but never allowed to speak in his own name. You know, there is no manifesto. Uh, there is no, uh, he was killed before he was, you know, could be arrested. So there was no court case. There are no trials. There's no, um, you know, so his friends and acquaintances under intense police interrogation offer some evidence about Charles, but I don't know how much we want to trust that. Um, the white press and the police obviously tell their own stories about about Robert Charles, um, but for obvious reasons, those are not the most unbiased sort of uh, perspectives on on Charles and and what he was thinking. So, you know, that the character at the center of of this event is just not there. Um, and you know, how do we how do we tell a story lacking the perspective of its central character? You know, is it? Is it moral for for a historian to do that—to to to try to tell this story without without the perspective of of, of Charles? And you know, I, I struggled with this for a good long time. Um, and and Brandon, I think you and I talked about this when I was in the midst of my you know like existential crisis about how to, how to write this. <laughs> I didn't book. want
0: to call it that, but yeah, it and, seemed like know, it.
1: It, it. I struggled with it for a long time. Like how do I how do I tell the story? Um, and then finally, eventually, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to foreground it. I'm going to rather than pretending that these silences don't exist i'm actually going to let my reader in on the secrets and i'm gonna i'm gonna be as transparent as i possibly can throughout the entire book about what i know and what i don't know um and and you know see where it goes and i mean this this ends up extending beyond robert charles so charles spent uh, most of his time in new Orleans. In a section of town that I refer to as the back of town um, today, it's known as Central City. Uh, but in, in 1900, the vast majority of the landmass of present day New Orleans was, was swamps. Um, the city started a, a large drainage project um, in 1899 into the first years of, of the 20th century. Um, so Charles lived sort of right on the edge of the swamp, um, as did you know many African-American migrants to the city, Uh, who came from Mississippi, who came from the rural parishes of Louisiana Louisiana, looking for work, And you know these laborers. uh, There were also a a significant number of white immigrants who lived in uh, these parts of the city, the the back of town sections of the city, the sort of the last blocks that were sort of built, you know, before the swamp, effectively. Um, And this is a part of the city that was systematically ignored by by the government. Uh, It was hardly ever, you know, discussed in um, in the newspapers. It was sort of. Out of sight, out of mind, um, Particularly where the black residents of the back of town were were concerned, and this suited the agenda of the sort of the white city fathers just fine. Um, they desperately needed these laborers, laborers like Robert Charles, to do the work that was going to keep the city of New Orleans running. Um, you know, somebody needed to work in the factories. Somebody needed to work on the docks. Uh, somebody needed to, you know, uh, lay the streets and lay the drainage pipes and and the sort of thing. But by sort of systematically ignoring and just sort of uh, silencing a whole section of the city and a whole population, it sort of excused uh, the city from providing much of anything in the way of support or infrastructure or or anything to to the the residents of of this back of town section of the city so you know I mean the silences go deeper than than Robert Charles you know it, it was an entire section of the town and an entire uh, set of people who really are all but absent in the historical record. Um, and then when we look at, at, at questions of, of memory, we see again, after the fact, the ways that uh, I argue at least that, that the Robert Charles affair, the Robert Charles riot, the 1900 riot is is sort of, I would say quite intentionally forgotten among white residents of, of new Orleans. Um, you know, maybe we can talk about the reasons for that, but you know, it does not make a mark in, in the, the, the public memory of the city and and new Orleans. I I say this with, with all the respect and love in the world, but new Orleans is a city obsessed with its own history. You know I mean? That is what arguably makes new Orleans, new Orleans, but not the Robert Charles, Riot, At least among white residents for, for most of the 20th century. And so, you know what started as just the sort of nagging doubt about can I tell Robert Charles's story given this evidentiary absence, given these silences, ended up actually becoming sort of the theme that ties it all together. Um, and I mean, the subtitle of the book is "Searching for the New Orleans Riot of 1900," and that was um, something I suggested to the press, and they were they were good with it and and went with it. Um, and, you know, I like that it's that it's active, right? It's searching for, you know, I wanted something that suggested that this is this is a process that, you know, I as a historian, but to a certain extent, the readers as well are searching for this riot still. It's an unfinished project. And, you know, the book is not the final word on it at all. Um, and so I tried to maintain that sort of transparency in terms of, of sources and silences um, throughout the book as best I could, you know, without I didn't want to get you can get annoying about it and you know that the maybes and the perhapses get, get, can be overbearing sometimes. So I, I tried to be cognizant of that as well, but, you know, trying to, to just be clear to the reader about what I knew and what I didn't and where I was making educated guesses and, and what, what's fundamentally unknowable, uh, you know, from, from our perspective. So given all that, it made sense to sort of just start with the story. Right. And, you know, I can tell you the story. I can give you the baseline thumbnail sketch of the events of July 23rd to July 27th, 1900. That's easy enough. Um, But dig a little deeper and it gets a little harder. Um, And so that's what, that's what the rest of the book does, you know, pages, what, 28 to uh, a hundred and (laughs) whatever, whatever, 197 or whatever it is.
0: Yeah, I think you do a really nice job of, of actually kind of trying to place Robert Charles. You know, as you said, we don't know much about him in particular, but but you tried to place him in the context of the world within which he lived, and I think you did a really nice job of of kind of admitting what what you and and everybody else will really have a hard time figuring out about him, but what we can can connect from from what we know about what was going on in New Orleans at the time, what was going on in Mississippi, some of the the small artifacts that were found in his room uh, to kind of piece together. A little bit about who he was, but as you said, there's there's no real smoking gun, and and that's one of the frustrating things uh, about about the story of Robert Charles. But you also brought up a couple uh, of other really fascinating points in your explanation as to why you front loaded the story. And this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Actually, is that you take this very specific event, right? And as you said, it could have just been like let's just go through these events in in one week. In July in 1900 in New Orleans. Uh, and it would be a great book. It would be a compelling narrative, and people would be drawn to it, especially given the context within which it is coming out, right? Um, but you really challenge people to think about this as something more than just um, a story about white violence um, and black reactions and resistance to white violence. Uh, And you have this really fantastic quote that I'm just going to throw out there. Uh, You say early in the book that the urban space of New Orleans was not merely the setting for the 1900 riot, it was the prize to be claimed. And I thought that was a really uh, fantastic point to bring out. And I think it speaks to not only what was going on in 1900, but as you suggested, after 1900, well into the 20th century, as the story of Robert Charles kind of falls by the wayside, uh, and other stories about the history of New Orleans are literally put up on pedestals. And so I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit uh, on what you believe some of the underlying causes were for this eruption of violence above and beyond, you know, Robert Charles kills and shoots at white people and that that uh, evokes this violent response because you seem to suggest there's something more going on
1: here. Yeah, definitely. I, I absolutely think there is. And you know, it, it's once you start sort of looking for the silences, they're hard to, they're hard to miss. Right. And, and you wouldn't think that a mob of, of thousands of angry white vigilantes would be silent, right. In, in any sort of way. These are, these are people who are taking the streets with their guns. They're screaming, they're breaking glass. They're, they're shooting guns. Um, but in terms of the actual, you know, agenda of those people in the street, especially on the night of July 25th, the Wednesday, which was was the worst night of, of the violence, I wasn't really satisfied with, with any of, of the uh, explanations that were offered in the contemporary sources in the newspapers, what the police said. Um, you know, the contemporary sources tend to rely on either, you know, they were young and drunk um, or they were searching for, for Robert Charles. Um, and in terms of young and drunk, I mean, the mob was, was too big to, you know, I mean, there's, there's something more going on. And in terms of searching for Robert Charles, uh, when you map where these crowds actually went, they relatively quickly passed through all of the sections of the city where there was any reason to suspect that Robert Charles would have been and they move to other places and they go to the Paris prison and they go downtown to the business district. And they go, as I said, to Storyville, the red light district. And, um, there's rioting uh, in the French quarter and on, you know, that the, uh, down river from the French quarter, you know, we're, we're, we're several miles from where Robert Charles conceivably would have been at, at that point in time. So, you know, I got to thinking, what are these people doing? Like, what are they, what are these white rioters, in the streets for. Um, and again, that goes back to the, to the context of, of the sort of the, the, the rise of Jim Crow. And, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the historian Steve Kantrowitz famously said that, uh, I don't know how famous it is, but I quote it all the time because it's a great quote. (laughs) It's Um, famous
0: to you and your students, right? (laughs) Exactly. Famous
1: to me. Um, white supremacy was hard work. Uh, it took work, you know, it didn't just happen automatically in the 1890s and, and into the beginning of the 20th century. And in this case, uh, Segregation was very much incomplete in New Orleans um, in July of of 1900, and I I came to see the rioters as sort of um, making a claim on public space, uh, and and their path throughout the city from one perspective is completely random. You know why? You know I I I, I mapped it, of course. You know, so sitting there with like. At you know the newspapers say they're here and then they're here and then they go here, and it looks it's completely nonsensical. Um, but maybe that's actually the point, and maybe there is some sort of coherent agenda to where they traveled. Um, and it turns out several of the places that they that they visited were actually places that had been in the news in the previous weeks and months. Um, they spent time in the, the, the riders went to a park, uh, Morris park, where there had been some concern about, um, black residents, allegedly, uh, uh harassing white women. Um, the rioters spent a lot of time on and around the streetcars, which were still, uh, desegregated, but actually a, uh, a, a desegregation ordinance was, was, had been proposed. So, once you start, uh, they go to the public markets, right? Which were these integrated spaces. So actually, where the riders are going are the, are these sort of problematically integrated spaces in a city that was very much not perfectly, very that was imperfectly segregated uh, in in July of of nineteen hundred. Um, so you know, I I came to sort of believe that there there actually was a sort of logic there, uh, where where these mobs were going, and actually to simply say, oh, they were searching for Robert Charles, or oh, they were just out to kill. African Americans was kind of to miss the the politics of it and and what what the rioters were actually doing and they were actually making a claim on on the city quite literally on on the public spaces of the city um, and it actually goes even deeper than that because uh, when the mayor comes back into town and deputizes this emergency civilian police force, this is very much a sort of uh elite militia it, it, you might call it a silk stocking militia it is the sort of middling and upper class professionals who who come out to join this volunteer police force uh, to rid the city streets of the rioters who have been out for, for the previous two days. And then you have a sort of different sort of claim on the public space where the sort of, uh, you know, the rising political and industrial elite of new Orleans is, is making their own claim on the public space and in their own way, um, trying to sort of clear the streets of, of the, the white vigilantes who are, Causing the city to look bad in in the national press, and so you actually have a sort of multi layered um, struggle for New Orleans, quite literally, for you know the the city streets on a on a block by block, square by square, house by house, even sort of um, sort of level. So.
0: Yeah, you've got these these competing interest groups. You kind of break it down into these these kind of race relations kind of issues, but also related to class and the the perception uh, of how New Orleans is being viewed. And I thought one of the really important points you brought up in the book too is right that you've got this mob of thousands of people. Uh, but even that that mob with, with thousands of people in it is somewhat silenced in that like who who were all of these individuals? Um, it's easy to say, and then the mob did this. But but as you point out, that is thousands of people making decisions on their own to go do these things. Why were they there? What were their goals? Um, and I think that was a really fascinating point. We know there were thousands of people there, but we don't know really who they were in many respects. And that's just one of those frustrating things uh, that's kind of omitted from from the historical record in a way that, that is kind of maybe not apparent at first, right? Exactly. You know, there yeah. was a mob there, but who were these people?
1: We end up with, you know, something like uh, 14 names. I think it is there. Are 14, <laughs> right. 14 white people arrested for um, mob related crimes for several are for murder uh, as well as, you know, unlawful assembly and, and various charges like that. Um, there are uh, several African Americans. Uh, I think it's 10 or 12 uh, arrested for, aiding and abetting Robert Charles, um, and, and one of the great, I don't know what the word is, but, uh, no one is convicted. Of, yeah, I think of that was really
0: telling, right? No one's convicted in all of this mob-related
1: uh, events, or of, of of any crimes related to to the events of uh, of July nineteen hundred. Actually, that's not quite true. There is one man who is uh, convicted of, of perjury for for lying under oath. But in terms of, of acts of violence committed in in late July nineteen hundred no one is actually convicted of, of these crimes. But so we do get, we get the 14 names, right? We get, you know, 14 white rioters, um, none of whom are are convicted of these crimes. Um, But that gives us a little something. And, you know, so you, you you go from there and and do what you can to sort of recreate the, the, the logic and the, the worldview and the politics of, of, of that crowd. And, you know, I guess I should say at this point that I'm obviously not the first historian to deal with issues of silence, right? I mean, this is, you know, I teach Michelle Rolf Trujillo's silencing the past, you know, at least once a year in in my graduate seminars. And there are any number of of great books that do this. So I'm I'm by no means claiming to to you know have I discovered historical silences. Nobody realized that, you know. That's not really the point. Um the point is that that for me, silence actually became part of the story, right? It becomes it's it's part of the way that this riot before and after the way that this event functions and at the part of its lasting significance. So, I mean, silence almost becomes a character, right? And you know, yeah. And it's Robert Charles is, as, is silenced and the back of town residents, uh, the residents of of this part of the city are, are silenced and memories are silenced. And, you know, even the white mob in its own very loud, very public sort of way is, you know, their perspective is, is, silenced or or at least obscured so you know i think we need to or i tried to spend time sort of uh excavating those motivations as well
0: yeah absolutely i think you did a really nice job kind of giving the reader a look into your own thought process um as you're kind of going through the archives and thinking through what this means and as you suggested at the beginning um Almost half of your book actually occurs after everything is over. Um, and so I was hoping we could we could kind of go into two different paths here. One, uh, how do New Orleanians present the riot after it is over? So kind of this immediate aftermath. And then, as you suggested, a city that is in love with its own history and celebrates it. Um, what happens to the story of Robert Charles throughout the twentieth century? What do New Orleanians do with it? What do what does the national audience do with this story that that seemingly captivated the nation uh, for for a week in in July, nineteen hundred?
1: Yeah, so I mean the uh, the sort of hook here, uh, the way the, the way the book begins. Um, is an interview that was done. Uh, Alan Lomax, the folklorist, uh, did an interview with Jelly Roll Morton, the uh, the famous New Orleans jazz pianist in uh, 1938, 38, I think it is. Um, and in the course of this long series of, of interviews, uh, Morton was a child in New Orleans at the time of the Robert Charles riot in 1900. Um, but in the course of this long interview, he talks about Robert Charles and the events of July 1900. Um, and I, I can't quote this verbatim. Um, but Morton says something to the effect of there used to be a song about Robert Charles and I used to play that song, but it was squashed by the police department due to the fact that it was a trouble breeder. And so I, uh, I decided to forget that song in order to make my way in the world and to get along with folks. Right? So there was a song and I used to know it, but I decided to forget it and that I did, um, which is just this remarkable opening, right? So, I mean, that, of course, is the way the book opens, because how could you not open with that? You know, it's a, it's the, it's a, a song that's too dangerous to sing, a story that is, that is you know, too controversial to tell, right? Um, so that, you know, Morton's, Morton sort of provides the, the, the opening here. Um, and on the one hand, you know, if we take Morton at his word he sort of encourages us to look into this process of forgetting, you know, the way that people forgot Robert Charles. But on the other hand, Morton didn't forget Robert Charles. You know, he's, it's, it's, he talks about it at some length and, you know, in
0: 1938. Yeah, exactly. Several decades after it happened.
1: Exactly. He, He, you know, who knows if there was actually a song, maybe, you know, maybe he just played uh, a stanza of a song one night, you know, maybe he just didn't want to share it with Alan Lomax. I don't know, but clearly he hadn't forgotten. And the, the sort of the, the, the story of I forgot that song on purpose is a bit of a, a ruse and it's kind of, you know, you can almost see him, Jelly Roll Morton sort of winking at us from, from, you know, the, the recording. Um. So, you know, I, I, I sort of, I started from there um, and, you know, the, So I guess there there are really two paths. Um, The the first is in the immediate aftermath of the violence, um, white New Orleanians seemed eager to remember and and commemorate it. And and there are several ways um, uh, in which they they seem to do that. So funds are set up for the victims, the, the families of, of the police victims of Robert Charles. Um, nobody gives any money to the African-American victims of the white mobs, but funds are set up for, for the, the, the widows and children of, of the slain police officers. Um, there's several big, uh, events, benefits that are held. Um, the mayor prints, uh, or has commissioned, Uh, special badges for the members of the citizen police who, who came out to, to put the rioting down. And so there's a sense that this is a really important event that people want to, to involve themselves with and, and be connected to. Um, But then it fades. Um, And nothing comes of the trials in, in uh, later 1900 and into early 1901. And then there's no sort of first anniversary commemoration and, and relatively quickly, um, the white residents of New Orleans just seem to stop talking about Robert Charles and, and the 1900 riot, and you know maybe that's not surprising. Um, once we we've, once we sort of step back and think about w- what occurred here, you know, I mean, this is not a story that that made the city look particularly good. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's Orleans, in the context of the
0: city trying really hard to make itself look really, really good. Exactly.
1: Exactly. That's I mean, New Orleans was a sort of uh, a sh- very much a striving a kind of second tier city in in the late 19th century, trying to sort of make a name for itself uh, largely through tourism. Which is, you know, a process that obviously continues into to the 20th century and beyond. But so, you know, this is kind of a black eye. You know, I mean, not only uh, is, you know, are black residents of the city angry enough to to, you know, kill white police officers, but white residents of the city killing black people on the streets. You know, it's it's not a very good look. Um, so you can sort of understand why why white residents of the city wouldn't be eager to tell the story. But on the other hand the sort of the, the tourist industry that grows up in, in the 20th century talks about an awful lot of, of sort of uh, sorted stuff, right? So, I mean, the, interestingly, the 1891 lynching of 11 Italians in New Orleans appears in all of the popular histories written in the mid-20th century, Lyle Saxon and Andre Cajun and people like that. Um, Storyville, uh, and sort of sex work and legalized prostitution appears in in all of these histories, and um, the the story of uh, the the cruelty of Madame LaLaurie appears in the the you know infamous Creole uh, slaveholder who was who is allegedly uh, brutal to to her enslaved people. Um, so you know there's a lot of of nasty stories that are actually sort of baked into the the New Orleans historical mythology, but Robert Charles just isn't. And you know I mean I think that's that's something that we should take seriously, that, that silence. Um, and the challenge of course, is that it's, it's really hard to prove silencing, right? Short of, it's hard to prove forgetting, you know, short of somebody saying, I'm going to forget this. Um, and actually there is at least one example of that, which is, uh, Henry Hersey, who was, um, the The editor of one of the cities, the of the daily states, which was the the most avowedly white supremacist of the city's four daily newspapers, in July 1900, in early August 1900, uh, Henry Hersey writes an editorial where he basically he says, "I'm not going to say anything more about Robert Charles and the events of of last month, uh, because if I do, it's going to encourage copycats. It risks turning Robert Charles into uh, he says basically a a black Richard the Lionhearted." Um, and I don't want to do that. So that's, this is the last you will hear of those events in the Daily States. Um, so that's a that's a nice, you know, I am going to forget this moment. But other than that, it's, it's very hard to prove forgetting. Um, but the silence, you know, I argue does become conspicuous is basically, especially when you stop to consider all of the other things that white New Orleanians do talk about right? Um, we didn't even mention the, the the White League coup of 1874, which is immortalized in in a, a monument that that stood until uh, just you know a couple of years ago. So, you know, th- there are I found it conspicuous. So that's that's one sort of thread. Uh, you know, Robert Charles being sort of written out of of the sort of official white narratives of the history of of the city. Um, but Black New Orleanians did not forget robert charles and they very much kept the story alive so that's the other sort of thread that i that i that i follow in the in the sort of last bit of the last part of the book um several african americans in the immediate aftermath of the violence the immediate aftermath of 1900 invoke robert charles's name in the midst of altercations with police officers uh which is shocking, right? You know, I mean, to, to, to say I am the brother of Robert Charles or I am a second Robert Charles or Robert Charles was right or, or any of these things. Um, that's a, that's a powerful political statement to be made in 1901, 1902, 1905. And it's, it's not just once. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a dozen or so times I found evidence of the sort of, um, almost ceremonial, evocation of Robert Charles in the midst of of altercations with with the New Orleans Police Department. Um, I just finished an article uh, which should appear in in the Journal of African American History in a year or so. It was just accepted recently, uh, which I co-wrote with a guy named John who teaches at uh, LSU um, about a a black political sorry, a black religious order uh, in New Orleans called the Council of God. Uh, that in 1907 gets involved in a uh, an altercation and kills a white police officer. Um, so John and I co-wrote this article, um, but in one of their temples, the Council of God had a sort of A a, a sort of bit of a shrine to Robert Charles, actually, like it's described as I didn't find this for the book. John actually found it and brought it to my attention later. I wish it were in the book. It's not. Um, But they had like a a, a preserved copy of one of the newspapers describing, describing, you know, the shootout and Robert Charles's action in a sort of like some sort of certain case like a displayed in a prominent place in, in their temples, So the story stays alive, um, among certain segments of, of the black community, even and as is
0: very visibly, right. This isn't just like people having quiet conversations behind closed doors.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a relatively small order. So I don't know how many folks would have actually seen that, but in terms of, of the membership of the council of God, this is a, a thing that is, is apparently treasured and, and prized and, and, uh, taken, you know, seriously. Um, so then, you know, fast forward a little bit, and you know, I had the advantage of. Uh, so Jelly Roll Morton was a clue, and I got to wondering: Are there other jazz musicians who had things to say about Robert Charles? And it turns out there were. Um, and you know, the advantage of that I that I, I lucked into here um, is that many of the first generation of jazz men and and jazz women in New Orleans were children around 1900. And so when interviews were done with these folks in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, many of them are preserved at the um, the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane. Um, the Historic New Orleans Collection has some interviews as well. But many of those interviews are with people who were children when the Robert Charles Riot occurred. And so many of them this isn't what they set out to do, but many of them happened to talk about Robert Charles in one way or another. So that ended up being a really sort of valuable source. And, you know, as you suggested, this is really significant because we're talking, you know, Jelly Roll Morton is 1938, but we have interviews, uh, in the forties and fifties and sixties. And, you know, 60 years later, people are still talking about Robert Charles and still remembering the story. And, um, some of the published, uh, memoirs of, of the first generation of jazz musicians. So Sidney Bechet's, uh, Famous memoir, treated gentle, talks about Robert Charles, um, and you know, I mean, you have a sort of sizable body of these these jazz musicians who who do remember Robert Charles and and the events of July nineteen hundred, and who talk about it in in really interesting ways, and you know, the way that that you know, at least the way that I think about memory studies and and you know, sort of writing writing about historical memories, you know, a, a lot of these. Reminiscences are factually incorrect, um, but they're factually incorrect in really interesting ways. And once you start sort of probing at the things that they get wrong, and start thinking about, you know, a couple of them said this. Why would they say this? And how did that? How did that story get started? And how did that get passed on from generation to generation and and shared? And what were the sort of the the you know underground subaltern processes by which this memory is preserved and, and passed on. And, you know, so... What was the
0: most interesting inaccuracy that you found um, in all of these these recollections? Well,
1: I thought the most striking one, I think, is the fact that several of them insisted that Robert Charles was not killed in, in late July 1900, um, which is... It's just not true, um, you know. I mean, it's I've, I've I've seen the coroner's report. He was he was he was shot, and he was then shot an additional thirty five times. And and um, but a number of them said that Robert Charles had escaped one way or another. Um, had just sort of like walked out of the building on Saratoga Street. Two of them uh, said that Robert Charles had put on women's clothing uh, that he found in the house to sort of escape, which is just this remarkable image, right? After you know a week of terrorizing the NOPD and white New Orleans, you know, the notion that Robert Charles puts on some woman's dress and walks out the front door. Um, one of the interviews, a guy named Frank Amaker actually did a, did Robert Charles as, you know, quote unquote female voice. And, and, you know, so the recording, uh, he has Robert Charles saying something like, Ooh, what's the trouble ooh, ooh. and and walking out of this house on saratoga street you know and effectively just riding off into the sunset is is just
0: an insult right to, exactly. to white orleanians
1: it's, it's incredible what a story and you know he, he 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 robert charles lives on he wins um and you know i mean the, the sort of the metaphorical significance of of that retelling isn't you don't have to unpack that too far to sort of get to the notion that the, the story lives on the story matters and that you know even if Robert Charles didn't, you know, the, the, the lessons that he has to teach us it did. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, that's the sort of the, 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 the Janus faced kind of process here, you know, official forgetting combined with quiet subaltern reminiscence and commemoration um, and even, you know, lionization in in, in, in certain ways. Um,
0: do you think, I mean, I don't want to ask you to just guess at the future, but do you think something will happen with this commemoration of Robert Charles moving into the future, considering the world we now live in, where issues related to police violence and racism are kind of rising to the fore, especially now that New Orleans is going through this kind of process of grappling with the way they've commemorated the past and maybe coming up with new ways to include um, different histories do you think something fresh happens with Robert Charles officially in New Orleans? Well, there is. So they finally succeeded
1: in putting up a historical marker to the 1900 riot um, and to to the the victims of, of the riot, um, which I was finally able to see. It went up in late 2020, and I was not able to make it. Um, but the American Historical Association meeting was in New Orleans in early 2022. And so I was finally, finally able to visit it. Um, it's, uh, it's on, uh, O.C. Haley at, uh, MLK. So it's in central city. Um, it's across near the, the, what is it? The food and beverage museum. Um, it's, it's sort of across the street from there.
0: Um, what's the significance of that site to the larger story? It is quite close to the site of the Saratoga
1: street shootout. Uh, but it's, I think they chose that spot cause it's a much more, busy intersection than Saratoga street, which is a, a very small, uh, a little street. Um, but I mean, the, so that was sort of, it was really s- powerful for me to see that. And I was able to, um, t- to sign into that. They, they, they live streamed the, the dedication ceremony. So I was able to see that at least virtually. And, you know, I, I actually started crying when, um, they had these two middle school students, early high school students, who they brought out to to read the the text on both sides of the markers. Two African American uh, students, um, one whose name was History. The 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 student's name was History, which is just just perfect. Like you, you couldn't even. Um, but they read the text, and then uh, at the at the he started screaming out Robert Charles's name um, at the sort of the the the. The encouragement of of one of the women who was was running, sort of emceeing the ceremony, and you know, seeing this this young black man standing in front of finally, finally, an official recognition of this event in New Orleans, and screaming Robert Charles's name in Central City. You know, I mean, that was that was a really amazing moment for me. Um, so I'm, um, you know, I don't deserve uh, any credit for getting getting that that marker up, I did sort of, you know, consult a little bit on the, on the text and whatever, but there was a local organization called the Orleans legacy project who worked with, uh, the equal justice initiative, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama to, to get that marker, that, uh, historical marker placed. Um, so, I mean that, you know, finally there's some, some official sort of recognition of, of the events in, in the, the sort of built landscape of the city. Um, But I mean, you know, interestingly, the way that the book really ends, um, I shouldn't tell this to your listeners, they should, they should should go buy it and find out for themselves. Um, But I was actually more directly involved with an earlier failed attempt to, to place a marker to, to this event, which, um, so, I mean, the, the way the book really ends is I sort of read two things in, in juxtaposition. Um, one is a, a piece of artwork, uh, by an artist named Najee Dorsey, uh, called Google, Robert Charles. So you should do that. You should Google, Google, Robert Charles, and you'll, you'll see the image, um, which yeah,
0: press is pause uh, and go Google, Robert exactly. Charles really quickly right you to, now. You to, you
1: to, you've got to you know, Google, Google, Robert Charles. You need to put the, the extra Google in there. Um, but that's a, it's a really powerful work that, you know, uh, depicts Robert Charles in the altercation with, I think he did it in 2015 or so. Um, he it depicts Robert Charles right before his altercation with the police officers and the title of the piece. You know, Google Robert Charles is a is a command, right? I, I was able to speak with with Dorsey about it, and he's very much saying, "Do it. You need to know this story. You need to learn it. You don't know it, and you should. So Google it." Um, so that's that's one half, and then the other half is this historical marker that that never was, which um, I was working with a group in New Orleans in 2015. Uh, that wanted to place several historical markers in the central city section of town, the first one of which would have been to the, the 1900 uh, riots. Um, we got so far, I drafted some some marker text. I wrote a, a explanatory description. Uh, they took it to the city and the city declined to move on the marker at that point in time and it sort of just died on the vine. My supposition uh, is that... Mayor Landrew at that point, had just announced that he was going to take down the four Confederate statues, the Robert E. Lee statue, uh, the 1874 White League coup, Liberty Place statue, and the two others, um, Jefferson Davis and Beauregard. Um, and actually, Landrieu announced that at a meeting designed to honor the organization that I was working with in 2015. But, um, my sense, my hunch is that they, in the midst of, of sort of gearing up for what ended up being a really sort of pitched battle about taking down these, these Confederate, uh, you know, lost cause monuments, they just didn't necessarily want to go down the Robert Charles path. You know, the, the story was still a little bit, too hot at that moment, perhaps. And so it well, was a
0: super contentious moment too, right? They're doing absolutely. it in the middle of the night, like covering their faces. They've yep. got bulletproof vests on and removing Robert E. Lee statue. Um, so you can imagine how tense that, that moment was. And then all of a sudden you throw in the story of Robert Charles who kills uh, white like police officers. Perfect, and do right, we want right. to do
1: that? And so I don't have any confirmation on that, but I mean, that's the,
0: that, you can was, imagine. that was my
1: sense at the time. Um, and, and so that was, you know, that attempt just didn't, didn't go anywhere. Um, but so I mean, you know, the book sort of ends with that cuz uh you know a a song a song forgotten and a marker a historical marker that never was. You know, more of the same, the story forgotten, the story ignored, not commemorated just one more time. Um but then the coda to this, that that the happy ending here is that it 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 there it, it you know, the marker is now there and and thanks to the work of of the Orleans Legacy Project uh, and the Equal Justice Initiative, um that's finally there and and so What a
0: nice way to end a tragic story.
1: I guess, you know, it's, it's, at least it's recognized and at least people can, can, you know, at least it encourages them to, to reflect on it. Um,
0: Well, let me ask you this, uh, and, and, and this will be the last one. So, uh, you know, you wrote this really great book. It's, it's, it's a compelling story. You're kind of talking us through your historical processes and frustrations and how you grapple with the silences related to Robert Charles, the mob, you know movement within a city what do you want readers to take away from this book like if, if if you had one wish and you said i hope everybody who reads this gets this one thing right what would that be
1: that's a great question um so i mean i guess you know watch me watch me be evasive and and turn my <laughs> one wish into to you know three or four more wishes um, more wishes i wish for more <laughs> wishes um yeah part of it has to do with just strictly from from a sort of content perspective, like a strictly historical perspective. Um, I think the people knowing the story of of robert charles is is really important. I think people recognizing that first of all, the the birth of Jim Crow was not automatic, and that uh, violence, horrific violence was at the very heart of of the process of segregation and, and disenfranchisement and the Jim Crow regime. Um, but also that African-Americans didn't accept it lying down and that they resisted in, in all sorts of ways from, you know, politics to, to boycotts to, to speeches to, in the case of, of Robert Charles and, and, you know, a, a few other African-Americans armed resistance, taking up guns to resist the encroachment of a white supremacist uh, regime. So, you know, I, I think, I think that, that is really important. I think it's important that people know Robert Charles's story specifically, but also that they know that larger context. Um, from the, the sort of New Orleans history perspective, I, I think it, it's important that, you know, this is a story that at this point, I think a lot of residents do know, but I think a lot of, of, Visitors probably don't. And I think a lot of people who who still go to the city and don't venture beyond the French Quarter or, you know, beyond Bourbon Street, I think this is a story that they should know as well. And, you know, I mean, the image that is on the cover of the book actually is uh, it's at Camp and Common Street, which is right next to the big Sheraton that's right on Canal Street, which is, you know, the, one of the big hotels on Canal Street. You know, this is right there. This is like it's looking at Canal Street. It's right in the center of everything. Um, and I think, you know an awareness of of this story and these people and the history of, of turn of the century, New Orleans, I think is, is important as well. Um, and then if I can have one more wish, um, <laughs>
0: I'll grant it. I'll grant thank it. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Appreciate that. From the, um, from the, the uh, sort of, I don't know, maybe a historiographical perspective or a, a, a theoretical perspective or a craft perspective or, or whatever, you know, I, I think once I made the decision to sort of foregrounds, the silences and the forgetting and the absences and the lacuna and and all of that. Um, I really think it did become a book about the act of doing history and a book about the historical process. And, and I would like, I would hope that the book appeals to, you know, students and scholars who don't necessarily care about the Jim Crow South. You know, I would like to think that, well, let me put it this way. You know, as I was thinking about this book, I read super broadly, you know, I mean, books on Chinese history and books on colonial America and books on Latin America and India, you know, looking for, I don't know what I was looking for, but books that that dealt in interesting ways with silences and sources and absences. And, you know, I certainly benefited from a wide variety of, of books that, that, that did that kind of work. And I would like to think, I would hope that you know, this book has something to say about just history generally and just, you know, the way that we do history and the way that we think about the past and what we can know and what we can't know and the assumptions that we, that we sometimes have to, to make as, as historians. So I would hope that it does have appeal, you know, beyond Southern historians or turn of the century Americanists or, or scholars of, you know, Jim Crow violence, um, yeah, so I think that would be my- So my coming to step. a
0: grad historiography seminar soon, right? You very want people much. to grapple with the larger yeah. kind of implications of what you're doing here, how you did it, and, and I think importantly, how you grappled with what isn't there. Um, because as you suggested at the outset, you could have probably very easily written a narrative, here's what happened on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, um, but does that really do justice to the larger story? And I think you answered that appropriately, not really, um, and here's some of the issues that go along with that. Um, so, the book is The Ballad of Robert Charles, Searching for New Orleans. I'm sorry, Searching for the New Orleans Riot of 1900. The author is K. Stephen Prince. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you.
1: This was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: And thank you for listening to New Books in the American South.